What a blessing it is that each of us have been granted this opportunity today to assemble and to gather on this first day of the week. It's truly a great privilege that you and I have been given and an honor indeed that we can direct our worship to the God of heaven in appreciation not only of what He has done for us materially, but far more significant, what He's done for us in a spiritual way. A moment ago, we expressed in prayer our thankfulness for the cross and our thankfulness for Jesus and our thankfulness for the church. And today, you and I have the opportunity to ask the question that's there before you on the wall and the one that hopefully will be a motivation for us as we give thought to how good is good enough. These introductory thoughts on this next slide will, in essence, motivate us into that particular lesson in the following way. Have you ever been in a position in life where you or perhaps someone that you know very well, perhaps a very considerate loved one, has asked the question, how good do I have to be in order to go to heaven? I've been baptized. I do that which I can do in the name of the Lord, but is it enough? Is it going to be enough? Easy enough, isn't it, for you and I to perhaps labor under an element of fear, an element of concern, is it going to be enough? Why don't you and I, for the next few moments, not only allow that thought to rest on our heart, but to open the Word of God and allow God to at least give us some appreciation about that matter and offer an answer. I would hope that before we close the lesson, we will be able to express an answer to it. But may I say that we'll develop a few matters along the way, and it all begins like this. Sure enough, as we reflect upon the preciousness of the Word of God, and the nature of what it presents to us, we are so very mindful of the fact that the Word of God does make reference to works in the name of Christianity. In fact, we're told that those works are an essential ingredient in our proper service to the God of heaven. Aren't we told in Philippians 2 verse 12 to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Didn't Paul utter those words to the ancient Philippian congregation as a matter-of-fact truth? In James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, that powerful writer not only posed the issue this way, but it addressed this answer with these words. Even so a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. James rather strongly worded the fact that works will be that matter of manifestation. It is the thoroughfare through which our faith is evidenced. Could I be quick then to point out, as you make reference to works, you and I would never say we're saved by works alone. The Bible doesn't say that either. You and I know that we are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8. And we're reminded that in that presentation, works are those matters we shall do in obedience to what God has affirmed upon us. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And so as you and I love the Lord, our obedience to His commands will be the thing that is the litmus test of our love. In that particular connection, I've offered you a few thoughts from Hebrews chapter 11 some reminders to you and me about not only the essence of works as they appeared in that honor roll of faith, but as those that could be motivational to us. I've chosen just a handful. 
You recall Noah. Noah was that person mentioned in Hebrews eleven seven, who at that time God told him to construct an ark, and he did it. This massive vessel that was able to preserve himself and his family and those animals that God brought to him to be placed on board. But that was a tremendous fact, and isn't it true that it says Noah obeyed it? You and I might then reflect, here was a person who was a servant of God, and look what he did. He built an ark, and through that, and the channel that went with it, it was a means of salvation for the entirety, in many ways, of the human family. But not only him, what about Abraham? I've listed on the slide some matters for your consideration there. There was a man whom God, at that time, spoke to him. He was living in Ur of the Chaldees, and God said, go hence. Go and leave and go to a place that shall be shown to you. And here it was Abraham who picked up his bags, picked up his belongings. He and his family left that place and journeyed hundreds of miles to a place at that time he did not even know. You and I also notice that he was given a promise. Your descendants shall occupy this land. It was the land of Canaan in Genesis chapter 12. It uttered again in Genesis 15. And with all the while, it's a reminder that he did it. You and I might then wonder, Noah built an ark. And Abraham is regarded as the father of the faithful. I've never built an ark. Surely you and I wouldn't be regarded as those that would be the patriarchs of the faithful. What about the third example, Moses? The Hebrews writer makes mention of Moses. And there on that same slide, I've called your attention. Here was the one who, through a burning bush, God told him, you bring my people out of Egypt. Moses was admittedly reluctant at first. But he did go. And he was their leader through all those years of wilderness wandering. In the midst of their complaining, in the midst of their lack of belief, in the midst of their faithlessness. He even pleaded with God on more than one occasion for them, despite the fact that they more than once were ready to kill Him. One more time, you and I can say, my faith has never led me to do anything like that. Is my life good enough? It certainly doesn't seem to compare favorably to Moses, to Noah, to Abram. What about Joshua? He's also mentioned in the closing verses of Hebrews chapter 11. And at that time, Joshua, of course, was the successor of Moses. He led the children of Israel finally on into the promised land. He was the very one through whom they enjoyed a number of years of powerful and present blessings from God due to their faithfulness. You and I have never led a large group of people of Israel across the Jordan River and have been a bulwark of faith for them for several decades. You and I can begin to think, it seems like my life doesn't compare very well to people like this. Back to our question, is my life good enough? Is it good enough that I can entertain the hope of heaven? At the bottom of that slide, I have listed a few other thoughts that sometimes readily cross our mind. It's admittedly true. You and I may have never committed any murder, 
We may never have been involved in kidnapping somebody. We may never have been guilty of child abuse. But all of that leads me to ask, can I honestly and sincerely, and same for you, entertain the hope of heaven? Are my works, or is my life good enough? The question does seem a fair one. And I suppose you and I not only may have been in conversation with someone else who was troubled by this, we need an answer. We need to let the Word of God do the talking. May I first couch the presentation that's about to follow under the simple word of holiness. That description will take us a few moments, but it will be a fundamental matter for providing the answer when you and I will give it here in just a few moments. As you see near the top of that slide, it in an absolute presentation, a definitive truth of which there could be no doubt, that our God, the God of heaven, Yahweh, He is holy. Of that, there again could be no question. 1 Peter 1.16 reminds us in which God Himself says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. His holiness is certain. His holiness is is sure to be to be described as holy it might well be that that concept is worthy of a few remarks some of which are on that slide before you the word itself in some form occurs over 650 times in the bible many of those in the old testament will surround in one way or another the ancient tabernacle that god commanded the children of israel to build Almost all the attributes of it were wonderfully couched in the language of holiness. The altar, the furniture, the coverings, those that were to serve. Many, many times the word holy was used to refer to them and to refer to what took place at that place. But it's not only an edifice, a structure like that. Our interest primarily for the moment is what about God? I suppose the attribute of God that is surely one of the most noble in all of the Bible is His holiness. I know very well that one could preach for decades on all the attributes of God. His love, His mercy, His grace, His perseverance, His patience, His strength, His almightiness, and the list goes on and on. But one must never look past His holiness too much because that will be a critical element. In our understanding today, I've selected just a handful of verses. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, In the aftermath of the children of Israel walking through the Red Sea on dry ground and the waters coming back together and drowning the chasing Egyptians, we find in Exodus 15 an anthem of praise and adoration wherein the children of Israel sang a song. And in the midst of that song of thanksgiving was a reminder of the holiness of God. Thou art holy, O God. And His decision to not only deliver the children of Israel, but to remove the Egyptians was stated in, in relation to His holiness. In Psalm 99, verse number 5, one more time, the holiness of God is the anchor through which that entire psalm revolves. It might be that that holiness takes you to Psalm 111, verse number 9. 
holy and reverend is His name. You'll notice that even God's name is connected identically to the attribute, to the nature of His holiness. I suppose one final one there would be the closing book of the Bible in Revelation 15.4. It's almost as if one final time where we're given the image of that glassy sea before the throne of God, we see the element of Him that's highlighted is His holiness. Nobody, may I repeat, nobody will be able to approach under the throne of God unless that person has a regard for and is one who is described as holy. Because isn't it true that God is of purer eyes than to look on iniquity? Habakkuk 1.13. And in Psalm 5 verse 4, we're reminded that again, that which is not holy shall not be in His presence. That's a powerful consideration for you and for me. One of the last elements that I thought would be interesting to notice, among all those attributes of God, and again, there are many, isn't it interesting that the one and only one of all of them that is mentioned in triplicate in the Bible is His holiness. And it happens twice. You know the verse already. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which is and which was and which is to come. Not only was that found in Revelation, it's also found in Isaiah chapter 6. And again, notice three times one right after the other, is a highlight and emphasis of the holiness of God. No other place in the Bible has His love highlighted that way, or His forgiveness highlighted that way, or His mercy shown that way, but His holiness is highlighted that way. No wonder then you and I, in recognition of that truth, brings us to the bottom of that slide. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, we have this truth. I'll mention part of the verse and then invite all of us to reflect upon that which completes it. Without blank, no man shall see the Lord. And to fill in the blank, the inspired writer presents the word holiness. God is holy, you see, and nobody who does not have that can ever expect to come in His presence. Holiness is required. Holiness is demanded. Holiness is what is surely to be the case in order for you and I to ever entertain being in His presence. It might be in that light we close that slide like this. When Jesus, the Son of God, came to this planet, when He tabernacled here in the flesh in the words of John 1.14, and when He in fact showed us the very nature and character of the God of heaven, we notice after His death that these words of great inspiration are given. In 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21, He then serves as our example, and He Himself was holy, no guile in His mouth, always serving as that appropriate one that you and I can follow, doing that which He did, thinking the way that He did. We're taught in Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so at this point, Jesus came to testify and to set before us the importance of holiness. That does bring us, of course, to this next slide, which continues that thought in holiness and prepares us for the answer. 
You see, that which wages war against the idea of holiness is sin. May we note again, that which opposes the reality of holiness and the occurrence of it is sin. The problem is all of us are inflicted with it. It is the worst disease by far that ever afflicts the human family. The word literally means to miss the mark. It's as though the God of heaven has affixed a target. And we've missed it. I've missed it. You've missed it. We have fallen short of it. We've veered to the right or the left. We've gone beyond it. But in one way or another, we've missed it. And in that missing, we've committed sin. In Romans 3 verse 23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There ain't no one of us exempt. In 1 Kings 8, verse 46, in the ancient era, King Solomon decreed, There is no man that sinneth not. Even Solomon understood that point. Having made statements such as them, doesn't it point out to us in directness the purpose for which God made us, the purpose He intended in us, and the goal that He would desire us to appreciate in light of that mark? to glorify Him, to honor Him. In Isaiah 43, verse number 7, it was there declared that in regard to ancient Israel, I have made Him for my glory. You and I read book after book of the Old Testament concerning the life and times of the children of Israel, the people, their kings, and the nature of their land, and yet the whole purpose for them was to glorify God. May we be quick to notice that much like that could be said of you and me too. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. As Solomon, in one of the finer things he ever wrote, he pointed out to us that the entire duty, the entirety of man, that which is the reason he's here, is to fear God and keep His commandments. Your purpose in mind isn't first and foremost to have cars, houses, bank accounts, clothing. There are matters of all that they are needful, without a doubt. But the prime aim of life, the matter that is in essence issue number one, is fearing God and keeping His commandments. And even when that can well be said, that does lead us to some of those next observations. Because look at what sin does. We've already noted that sin is that which is a missing of the mark. It is that which is, you see, what brings about an unholiness. I think we need to to develop that, though, using some of those verses that the Word of God so powerfully presents. In Jeremiah 3, verse 25, fairly early in that book of Jeremiah, God commissioned the prophet to make this statement. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth, even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And thus God decreed, by way of the words presented to the people, we've sinned. What does that mean? We're in confusion, and we're in shame. Both those things go hand in hand with sin, don't they? 
you and I know well in our own life and in the life of a nation, in the consideration of even a family. We notice then that confusion and shame and separation from God. And isn't it true, that part is the most serious issue of all. On the slide, I've invited you to think of verses like this one. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and following. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Notice what sin, what iniquity brought about. It brought about a separation. Here is the holy God and here is the sinful Randy. And you can put your name in the blank. And my sin separates, drives me away from him. And it does you too. Among the other verses to which we could refer, you may quickly observe some of these. In Isaiah 1, verse number 18, sin is described by way of color like scarlet. We know scarlet looks like a darkened red. It reminds you, in essence, of what is no longer white and clean and pure. You're stained with it. That's what sin does. It stains. It mars. It tarnishes. In Isaiah 51, I'm sorry, Psalm 51, verses 2 and following, David was brought to lament this very fact himself. He had just committed what he did with Bathsheba. We know what that was like. We've read about that in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And with it all, David was, re- was brought to realize, I've sinned against God. The sin was committed against God. I would think perhaps we could illustrate some of it this way. We know from 1 John 3 verse 4 that any transgression of God's law is sin. Any of them. Sometimes our world has come then to readily believe, well, murder is bad, that's a sin. But what if I have an impure thought? That's not the same. Oh, it's true it's not the same, but it's still sin. Because every foolishness of thought is sin, reads Proverbs 24, verse 9. And isn't it true that other matters of life, failure to do what we ought to do is sin, James 4, 17. And when you and I do something that is against our conscience, that is to say it offends the conscience, that too is sin, Romans 14, 23. And so there's a lot of things that fall under that reality and category being sin. And yet that sin causes unholiness. Back to the question, how good do I have to be? It's sounding like it's nearly impossible. Is there any hope for me? Any hope for you? Maybe an illustration could be in order. Look at the bottom of that slide. I I chose this one. Think about a person who has died. We know quite a bit about death. The Bible gives us some illustrations that I might put this way. Do you recall that the daughter of Jairus died? Now, Jairus was a person who had sent after and begged Jesus to come. My daughter is sick. Please come and heal her. Before Jesus got there, she died. In fact, there was a messenger that came and said, Don't trouble the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. 
Jesus turned to Jairus and said, Believe. Encouraging him to realize, and Jesus, of course, went on the journey. He continued on and came to Jairus' house. And you and I remember what happened. Jesus raised that little girl to life. He brought her back from the dead. Now, she hadn't been dead very long. Not very long at all. Her body hadn't begun to deteriorate much, but she was still dead. But contrast that to the other example we have in the book of John, chapter 11. Lazarus. He too died. It took four days for the Lord to come. You and I remember Jesus, in fact, had an idea in mind that it would be for the purpose of His glorification. And it took four days, and you recall they even said, Lord, He stinketh by now. It's been four days. Very different in this sense. Jairus' daughter had just barely died. Not much deterioration, if any at all. Lazarus had been dead four days. Significant deterioration. Probably a rather notable odor by that time. Could I ask you to notice, though, both of them were dead. Both were dead. Both Lazarus and the little girl. However... The fact they were both dead reminds us the degree of corruption was different, but it doesn't change the fact they were both dead. That can well be an apt description to help remind you and me of what sin does. Somebody, from our impression, might well be a fine, upstanding person. Some other person might be guilty of heinous crimes, as the world would call it. Murder, kidnapping, child abuse, you name it. fact is, they're both sinners. Fact is, they're both sinners. They both are unholy. And they both, in that state, are undone before God. That distinction, that consideration reminds us the essence of both is the same. Now, the degree may be different, but the essence is exactly the same. They're both dead. Brother Cale read from our hearing earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And in that passage, it again says, You hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. There were those dead in trespasses and sins. Those in the Ephesians congregation. And yet, of them it was said they'd been quickened. I think it's time for the answer. How good do I have to be? How good do you have to be? What's required on this part? It looks like Noah and Joshua and Moses and Abraham and others, they had accomplished so much in the element of faith. How good do I have to be to put together that which we've learned already? I think would readily bring us to make these comments and these observations. First of all, the person, every individual, needs to be mindful of and come to realize the essence of sin and what it is and the fact that each is guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. And you, nobody, is exempt from the sentence. Every single person has made the choice to sin. Every person of age, every individual who has arrived at that station of knowing wrong from right has invariably chosen that which was wrong. We've all done it. But in that light, isn't it sweet to notice that it's a tragedy in one sense to note there are many that don't realize it. 
John 15, 22, even Jesus commented, some don't even realize that they're in that condition of unholiness. The very essence of sin demands, once those become aware of it, that there be an essence of mourning, a sorrow. Look at what I have done. Look at what you have done. God loved me, and yet I turned my back on Him, and I did what He told me not to do. I failed to do what He told me I was supposed to do. And when I did that, I proved I didn't love Him the way I should. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There are times, I suppose, we could become guilty of comparing ourselves with others. I'm as good as He is. I do every bit as much as she does. You and I have to get out of the habit of that. That is so unhealthy. That is so unuseful. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Paul said, Don't do that. Her gifts and her capacities may well be very different than yours, and God will expect different of you than He does her. We've all learned that in the parable of the talents. The five-talent man had more talents than the two-talent man did, and God expected a different degree of value of what was accomplished by that man. The two-talent man had more than the one-talent man did. God, you see, distributed the talents accordingly, and then He demanded of each one according to that which was, that which was given to them. But you'll notice the one-talent man didn't do anything with his. And God judged him severely as a wicked and slothful servant, Matthew 25, 30. But you'll notice in that connection the following can be said. We've already learned that sin's what makes unholiness. Hear me now. The only thing that can be done is to be forgiven of that sin. That's the only thing that can be done. Doesn't matter how much money I contribute. Money's not going to forgive sin. That won't do it. The forgiveness of sin is the only thing that will remove the unholiness and to allow you and I then to stand in that condition of holiness before God. And so the question becomes, how do I attain or arrive at that station of holiness? that position of forgiveness. Thankfully, the Word of God provides the answer. It happens as you give thought to these. We've already learned early, I've got to come to recognize the essence of the sin. You've got to believe what the Word of God has to say about that. That I have committed affront to God. And I need to be forgiven. And I know that Jesus Christ came to make that a reality. I've got to believe in Jesus. John 8, 24, Jesus said, Except ye believe I am He, ye shall die in your sins. And that's strong language. To die in sin means I die unholy. But that belief alone is not enough, you see, to be forgiven because the Word of God says belief will not forgive by itself. In John 12, verses 41 and 42, there were those that believed. And Jesus still said they were lacking. Belief alone isn't enough. Isn't it true? Even the devil believes, John 2, 9, James 2, verse 19, but he's not going to be saved. Repentance is required. The God of heaven demands that we turn aside from that kind of unholy life we've pursued. 
And we strive to live a life of holiness and godliness. Didn't Jesus say, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish? Luke 13, 3. And in that unforgettable passage of Acts 17, 30 and 31, Paul preaching there in that great city of Athens, Paul commented then, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained. Isn't it interesting then to notice repentance as it's followed by a confession, the fact that one's life intends to be directed in a a proper way. Isn't it true in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 that with the mouth confession is made unto salvation? And then we note this, baptism for the remission of sins. Would you think about the word remit? To remit means thus to roll back, to take away. And those Pentecostians in Acts chapter 2 verse 38, they were told to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And thanks be unto God, about 3,000 of them attended that day to what the apostles instructed and they became New Testament Christians. That message that you and I have just noted leads you to note then at that point, upon baptism, one is then a member of the body of Christ. One has become a state of holiness as we journey through life. We may well stumble, fall. We may slide into a habitual way of living that's not right again. Oh, how God continues to love us and desire that we come back to His faithful side. But could we not comment like this? In 1 John 1, verse number 7, we read that if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. We are thus told that when we walk in the light, as we do so, His blood constantly continually cleanses us from sin, allowing us to maintain a state of holiness. As you close that slide, isn't the answer now clear enough? I've tried to summarize it this way. The question that I use to title the lesson is by far the wrong question. It's not a question of how good must I be. be. The question is, to whom must I belong? To whom must I belong? If you don't belong to the right person, it doesn't matter what you do in life. You will not be holy. And without holiness, nobody will ever see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. Are you a Christian? Are you a faithful Christian? If you're not today, we just noted a moment ago what must be done in order to bring that state of affairs about. Obey the gospel at once, won't you? recognize that all other things that might be said about your life, they will never accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Without blood is no remission. Hebrews 9.22 It took the blood of Christ in order to make it possible for your sins and mine to be forgiven. And as you and I are baptized, we contact His blood. And Acts 22.16 says that His blood washes our sins away. Today, if we could be of some assistance in some way It's not a question of how good must I be. Oh, it's true. As a faithful Christian, we desire to do works in the interest of serving the Lord, but we've got to belong to Him. Do you belong to Him? 
Does he know you and me by name? Is he recognized that he or she is my faithful servant? Again, if that's not true today, you're living not only in a state of danger, but in a state of unholiness. And you surely don't want that to continue. If you wish to obey the gospel today in this initial way, we'd love to help you, to encourage you. If you have known the way of Christ, but have not been faithful to it, come back today to your first love. We would love to not only make acknowledgement of your confession and your repentance, but we'd be honored to pray into God. As we do all of that, we're simply striving to follow those patterns the Bible has shared. Brother Larry has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of help at this moment, won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.